Welcome back to Literary Hangover. I'm your host, Matt Leck. With me, as ever, Alex Guns. Hello. Grace Jackson. Hello. And year 1710, we're going to go back to Bird uh, the second. Before we do that, I had the uh, honor of speaking in an interview in a writer who we have mentioned a lot on Literary Hangover, Peter Linbaugh. And it's a thing, it's the sort of thing where, you know, I don't know if you guys are like this, but compulsively completionist about certain things. Like you need to do the whole series. Is there anything that comes to your mind that you had to like, like right now I'm reading all of Philippa Gregory's um, books and also Hilary Mantel's because I feel like I need that entire his like I need to know all of like that historical fiction just so I can get a proper sense of how to weigh it. I feel like I'm always like that with novelists. Like any novelist, if I like one book, I'll just be like, well, all of them must be good, and then I end up reading just like so many you know like books that even the author doesn't care about anymore. Like so many early Henry James and stuff. And like, <laughs> I have to get the complete picture. Yeah, I'm just very compulsively completist about books in general. And so even if I'm not enjoying a book, I always finish it, which doesn't always serve me that well. Um, but yeah, I can't remember the last the last kind of author I binged on, but I imagine Philippa Gregory is a good one because there's so many. Exactly. Yeah. And they and they all tie together. It's like you get different perspectives of the same story, which sounds horrible. And it probably is for a lot of people, but it's actually kind of interesting. Um, I, I used to be like that with music, like back when I was really torrenting um, before Spotify, I would listen to full albums like that. And I would torrent full albums because that was the main thing you would do. And, you know, actually occasionally buy a CD. Um and now you don't necessarily do that with music. But anyway, I bring that up because I interviewed Peter Limbaugh about his uh, newest book, Red Round Globe Hop Burning. And of course, I've read Stop Thief. And um, the one I always mention is um, The Many-Headed Hydra. And so I felt like I knew a lot of his books. So we have this great interview, uh, which people should check out on the Left Reckoning um, uh, YouTube page. Um, and... At the end of it, I'm talking to him a little bit about it. And I ask, like, oh, by the way, you know, I'm thinking because of Many-Headed Hydra and um, Red Round Globe deal a lot with the Atlantic slave trade. And um, those in the Caribbean islands, particularly the Leeward Islands, you connect, correct my pronunciation. Um, uh, and I asked him if he knew anything about sort of like, I told him I was doing for another project, uh, something on bird and fishing for something on parks, um, you know, Colonel Park, the, you know, um, and the Antigua sort of uprising. Um, thinking if he had any, other, if any other historians might be able to like, if, if that he was aware of, right. He, little did I know that he himself had dealt with Micaiah Perry, um, bird's financier in a chapter in, his own book, The London Hanged, which I had, which, which is one of his that I had not read. So it's like, I just, I, I thought I had read enough. And of course I had um, read enough. Did he point that out to you in the conversation? I asked him, when I asked him for a, uh, a reference, he pointed out, said chapter five of this, um, Hogsheads, um, or sock, what is it? Socking the Hogshead and Excise um, on Makai Perry himself. Um, and I'm like, damn, that was more, it was more, uh, closer to home than I was expecting he had gotten um, to the bird stuff. And uh, yeah, again, made me feel like, damn, I wish I had read that one. Then I would have just known it. But anyway, 
it was a cool recommendation. So just to summarize, I don't know if you guys got to read that chapter, but it was kind of interesting. Um, Linbaugh is very focused um, with enclosure of the commons. And he means that not just of land, but of processes of labor. Like instead of knitting in your house, you're knitting in a factory. Right. Um, and uh, in tobacco, we talked a little bit last week about how um, Bird's father had written a paper for the like the Royal Society or something about stemming and uh, uh, seeding or whatever to tobacco before you send it along, right? And how that kind of sh- saves on shipping costs. One thing that uh, Lindbaugh points out in this chapter, socking, it, uh, um, uh, socking the hogshead and excise is the sort of habit of basically that's fighting this common custom of laborers uh, taking a little bit for themselves. Uh, and that basically that being a sustaining part of them, of, of their livelihoods basically is the part that they can take off. So when you're packing it in a nicer way, that's, it's harder to grab a little bit off basically, which I mean is amazing so not so you're basically having slaves do this um this chapter also talks about cooper um and i i dumbly had assumed that was about chickens um and no uh cooper is the guys who are um loading and unloading the hogsheads and like busting them open and stuff like that they're really really hard work and it's interesting that in this year um at one point go ahead the Coopers also make the barrels. Uh, I believe so. At least they, they, I think they, yeah, they're barrel makers and they bust them open. So both sides of the process. Like, and we should just, I think, Matt, just for listeners who don't know, hogshead is the kind of unit measure of tobacco at this time. But it's also, I think, referring to the container itself, which was like a big barrel with a kind of fat middle and then tapering off the ends, which they would use to transport it across the Atlantic. Cause for a while, I didn't know why, I don't know what this word meant. Um, yeah, I still point. don't know exactly why it's called hogshead. I'm sure there's a good reason. Um, yeah. I looked this up too, but I thought it was cause maybe you could put a hogshead in it. Uh, something, mm-hmm. Some old English um, <laughs> the, uh, measurement thing, but it, th- that doesn't have to do with that. But yeah, a hogshead was a big barrel, you know, the classic barrel that you, like you mentioned with the two iron rungs around it, iron being interesting because um, bird uh, lobbies or, tries to interest Governor Spotswood in ironworks uh, and forgery a number of times. That would be one of the main uses you would have for it, obviously ships too. And it, it doesn't end up really being proven economical. But uh, yeah, you know, hogs uh, um, hoisted, shifted, or slid from the barrels and wagon. And yeah, let's see if I can just find a, a definition of Cooper's too um, from this. But what I found interesting about this Cooper thing is, um, yeah, after 1699, the Cooper's work of fabrication, assembly, repair, and breaking of bulk had become the decisive had become decisive to all systems of tobacco carriage, whether by land, river, and sea. Now, oh yeah, okay, so this is oh this was July 1709, um, but the Cooper and I parted because I would not let him have three holidays as he desired. Okay, we talked about that last week, and uh, looks like does it come up again? On the 16th of February, 1710, he can't come to terms with the Cooper. Um, So difficulty with Cooper labor, um, uh, you know, mentioned by uh, Linbaugh in this, evidenced in Bird's diary here. And what 
Limbaugh points out is there's a inexorable sort of incentive to start using slaves for that labor, obviously, because right. Like bird bird, they start wanting three holidays. It's like, okay, look, we have this other labor force that we can just um, compel to do this. The economics of that, you know, it's, I, I thought that was pretty amazing that sort of like the uh, theory and actual documentary uh, evidence um, coming together. And, Oh, the other thing I, I found interesting was Perry was connected in England. You know, we mentioned he was kind of outgunned by some of the oligarchs that actually had houses locally. And the Perry family never got a landed estate in in England. But um, Mackay Perry, who had access to large capital markets, he held the largest of the very few private loans that the Bank of England entertained, 8,000 pounds. Uh, and that's like... The queen, I think, was getting something like 20,000 pounds a year or something, maybe 30 um, for her, like, allowance. So, like, 8,000 pounds is good money to to basically try to deal with falling rate of profit for uh, um, the tobacco industry. So, yeah, the state and uh, Limbaugh writes, the state had intervened in two decisive ways at the turn of the century, one political and forming a large customs bureaucracy and a police force and the other apparently technological in the legislation of containerization. And all, yes, also the uh, transportation acts uh, uh, helped compel this labor saying, if you got busted, say stealing 28 pounds of tobacco, that used to be a hanging offense. Now that's going to get you seven years transportation, you know, working in the uh, probably shipping or uh, on plantation. So um, that is what, a uh, you know, I got a little bonus from my interview in Limbaugh for Left Reckoning. So, um, you guys, anything you want to kind of broadly say before we begin the journey uh, in January 1710? Uh, I guess the, the thing that struck me the most with this year is that you can see his kind of literary flourishes that he seems to have, even though it's a diary and you know, literally feels like transcriptions of day to day. The things that he goes out and does, and the things that that he can later report into his diary sometimes feel like it's in a reverse order. Like he wants to write about it. So he would do something like that um, Mm. that we can go into as we get there, but stuff like digging up his father, which I know is like a common thing to do, but doing it like the beginning of the year and like right before his birthday, when he's like reflecting on his own life, but I think is has a, like a certain like literary quality to him. Yes, That makes me think that there's, there's some potential there that he was never able to really, uh, explore yeah it's interesting i dare say uh don't say this lightly that you see a more human side of this in terms of the abject cruelty there's there's still whippings but it's not just slaves it's actually his nieces and nephews uh get in for the whip because of uh they're very disappointing for him um um and we'll kind of go we're going to go in more chronologically than we did last time um but uh yeah let's start off with um january 1710 oh go ahead guys just one thing before we move on. Um, in the Linbor, the London Hanged that you were just re- referencing, that um, there was a kind of nice section on Coopering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says that um, such were the problems with paid labor in the 1720s that the incentives to use slaves as coopers and carpenters were considerable. Like you were just saying, uh, and saying after field work, Coopering was the most common trade exercised by African slaves in early 18th century Virginia. Mm. Um, So highly likely that 
but Cooper was was African. Yeah. And I mean, you see that last name everywhere. Uh, that's a, that's the other thing is like this is also an era of last name being your um, profession. Uh, I feel like yeah, you know, like uh, wheel rights and things like that. Like it, it, you're still seeing that, um, which uh, I find like a sort of fascinating. Um, so yeah. Uh, January 1710. New year, new bird. Let's see how his behavior <laughs> shapes up. Um, a lot more court this year, but we'll get to that. Um, so, yeah, he recommends his cousin to a ship, and then he dreams of an early super turn from Barbados. Uh, a lot of captains, uh, which he realizes, you know, people carry his tobacco to market, um, and he's constantly uh, talking with them about freight and how much he's, like, dealing with them. Um uh, uh, we get the first beating January 6th. Just, I beat Jenny severely, no reason get stated, and I danced my dance. So, you know, bad start there. Um, we know it's the same guy from last year. Yeah, it's still, and it, it definitely is. Um, and, um, but everybody's getting it this time. Um, t- uh, on the 10th in the evening, Mr. Saul, who's a French leader of like a bunch of French uh, soldiers, it looks like when they have a general muster, uh, when the governor arrives of troops, he brings his into the fold of the English, which is interesting. But Mr. Saul came down and told me all was well at Falling Creek and put me out of humor by putting stories into my head of several people. I can t- not tell by what design a lot of sickness. Now, Dick Randolph on uh, the 19th came and brought me a letter by England, by which I learned the queen's letter was sent to Carolina to forbid them from meddling with our traders. Um, Queen Anne, uh, you guys have anything to say about Queen Anne? I, I am going to rewatch the favorite, but I've been doing a little bit of reading about her and, uh, Sarah Churchill, which we'll get into a little bit, the Duke of Marlborough. Yes. That Churchill, the uh, great, great, great of Winston. Um, you going to say something, Grace? No, I was just remembering the favorite. Um, I should also rewatch that. Yeah. Because I I had no what's interesting about this time period is the emergence of Whig versus Tory politics and Tory basically being um, ideologically uh, monarchist um, and in the sense of like not even Queen Anne is a monarch enough for them because uh, Queen Anne and her sister in the glorious revolution in 88 or 1688 or 89 uh, disobeyed their father and basically went with the uh, Protestants. And that's because, so ideologically it's uh, anti, uh, let me, let me go back to the Whigs. ideologically anti-Catholic. Right, let me start with the Tories. It's so confusing. So Tories are ideologically monarchist and kind of Catholic. Um, uh, and, the landed gentry mainly and the Whigs are the current, you know, ruling monarchies of, of first William and Mary and then Queen Anne. Um, that's sort of Protestant and generally mercantile is their background. As we see the Perry's are big Whigs. Um, so, uh, and I do not know how well that is represented in the favorite at all. I just remember like, <laughs> you know, like some of the comic stuff um, in it, but uh, so yeah, Queen Anne saying some nice stuff. Dick Randolph is that's like one of the bigger families, maybe even bigger than Birds. And Perry has a Makaya Perry has a ruling uh, majority stake in their fortune. Um, 
a funny thing happens on January 22nd. There's some weird coincidences that you can see why you would believe in supernatural stuff. It, you know, at this time, the way at least the way it's recorded. About 11 o'clock, we went to church, and before we went in, Mr. Harrison's horse ran away with his coach and broke down my mother's tombstone. Now, Mr. Harrison later dies uh, in this year. Um, I mean, but like his, his horse ran away with his coach and broke down my mother's tombstone. There's a lot of cool details in here, like things that I would steal for a novel set in the time period. But you might look at it and be like, that's a little bit on the nose. Like the, the coach broke exactly your mother's tombstone. Oh, yeah, he had his fa- – you mentioned this, I think, last time, Alex, but I had my father's grave open to see him, but he was so wasted there was not anything to be distinguished. Yeah, that's really strange. Why does he do that? I don't get it. I don't get why that is a thing. Um, that was a standard practice for, like, family members that had family crypts up until, like, the mid-19th century. Uh, like, really? Lincoln famously did it with his son, which is the basis of uh, – What's that book recently? George Saunders, the Lincoln and the Bardo is all about that event. Mm. Uh, Emerson did it frequently with his own children. Um, but yeah, I, there's something interesting about William Byrd digging up his own name, you know, cause his father has the same name as him and it's like beyond recognition. And there's, there's like so much like literary, like. He's uh, lucky Freud wasn't born then. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. That he's like, I can't even recognize my own lineage. And I feel like this whole year has like portents of like images of change and drastic change and judgment. And he's like in some sort of liminal space. And I wonder, you know, everybody like wild dreams in this year. Yeah. And events are happening at like quite a rapid clip of like people like, you know, turning over at rapid rate. And I think it's just this feeling of this kind of middle, middle period between two, uh, epics is like that's kind of like the the general thrust of this year uh he's very charitable i think in this year giving a lot of sick to to uh or physics to uh sick people and even one time where uh and we'll maybe get to it later where a woman her daughter's sick and he's like well you just have her come stay with us for a few months and i'll try to cure her she's like yeah that that reminded me of something I read in Albion Seed, the, the David Hackett Fisher book that we read um, as context for this. And he's sort of talking about the nature of Virginia society. But he makes this point about the kind of extended network of kinship that was at play at this time and how basically as a patriarch, and I think we mentioned this last time, as a patriarch bird was invested in this idea of himself as someone who could bring in people under his roof and take care of them, administer medicine. You know, he also forgives a few debts early in 1710. Um, it's almost like a kind of amnesty vibe uh, where he he kind of bestows his benevolence on these people. Um, all part of this idea of the family as kind of existing under his care you know? Yeah. He even has a quarrel with his wife like- for not uh, uh, administering care, like a bitter f- drink to somebody. Yeah. Um, yeah. What were you going to say, Alex? It's almost like the, this class of people trying out their first attempt at like, kind of like romantic feudalism or being like, mm-hmm. like trying on the garb of like the feudal Lord, even though that those relations aren't, are kind of, 
are beginning to be outmoded. You can still see the impulse and reach towards being that kind of thing, which I think is going to be a huge thing in Southern politics and culture for, you know, up to and including like the civil war. Yeah. Yeah. It serves a social purpose, but I think it also serves, and a political one, but also it serves the, um, it helps people to survive as well because like, you know, literally he's, he's, uh, people are dying all the time in his household and other households. And it seems like something that basically was a matter of life and death eventually evolved into this more kind of refined set of social practices, which, which still kind of live on today in the South, I think. Yeah. Um, let's move on to February. Uh, where should we start in February? Uh, his wife has a miscarriage on the 14th, um, which, you know, it, I, I often forget that she's pregnant until something like that happens. I feel like that might have happened. or Maybe that didn't happen in 1709, but I can't remember. But yeah, all of a sudden you hear that. Um, some very some guy some bro time happens on uh with regard to some mares on the 23rd so oh the horse breeding scene yeah yeah so kind of just before we get to that on the 23rd he writes the captain's bitch killed a lamb yesterday for which we put her into a house with a ram that beat her violently to break her of that bad custom now did not work because a few days later the dog uh bit another lamb and they had to kill it um that is that sort of wisdom though like first like false um but i mean like i would kill for if those guys to write that stuff down like what they thought about like oh this is what you do you if that dog there's later they fire off which this this makes sense they fire off guns around horses to make sure the horses aren't scared um around them which i mean that, that i'm pretty sure that makes sense but well, I do. I mean, I live in the Lake District where uh-huh. there are just thousands of sheep everywhere. Um, and I have a dog and my parents have a dog. And my dad actually claims that all you need is for your dog to be attacked by a ram once and your dog will never worry sheep. Hey, then it's just folk wisdom. I love that. That's uh, um, interesting. I don't know if it's true. I'm well, not to actually do it. Yeah, I mean, to actually have like a barn and, uh, you know, the ability to coordinate it and also invite your pals over to come watch it. Um, uh, That's different. These guys, I mean, this was a real, there's a lot of dudes rock stuff going on, uh, particularly in this little episode. Um, So definitely a dudes rock colony in general. (laughs) general, Yes. Way more than I think even uh, Massachusetts. And his wife, um, sorry, go Alex. I'm going to say more oh, no, I was just going to say that Massachusetts is a dude's go to hell kind of. <laughs> um, after they watch the horses breeding, his wife gets mad at him yeah, for so, watching something like unclean or something. So yeah, let me read that uh, on the 26th. In the afternoon, we saw a good battle between a stallion and Robin. Robin is his horse. He's very, he's very close to Robin um, and, and Robin about a mare. But at last, the stallion had the advantage and covered the mare three times, which is a disgusting phrase. Um, covered the mare three times. Uh, if you've seen The Crown, you'll know that that is, in fact, the technical term. 
I, I, According to Queen Elizabeth II. Interesting. Um, again, I don't. I've never invested in horses, so I've never <laughs> married get broken. Um, oh. uh, 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 the captain's bitch killed another lamb for which she was beat very much. Yeah, again, that, that, that dog hasn't been killed yet. Uh, we took another walk about the plantation. My wife was out of humor with us for going to see so filthy a sight as the horse to cover the mare. <laughs> Even in the evening, we drank a bottle of wine and were very merry till nine o'clock. Um, I also like the early bedtimes. Um, as a as a thirty two year old now, I'm starting to really respect that. Um, you get your drinking done early. Um, but then two days later, he's still thinking about this horse. So my horse Robin was melancholy because the mare was shut up with the stone horse. So it's like one of those is she really going out with him? You know, uh, or no? I think the the, the music drop would be. Um, Arctic monkeys, uh, bigger boys and stolen sweethearts and um, with the stone horse and would not eat. the horse. So Robin won't eat. Uh, you know what? We've all had our heart broken, um, but stood at the fence all day to look at her. I ate duck for dinner and in the afternoon in pure pity, let the mare come out to Robin, who was glad to have her again, though he could do nothing to her, but keep her company as a platonic lover. Do you think he's projecting? It's very weird. I think it's projection, yeah. I yeah. think it's like their equivalent of a sitcom or something. Like, Rom-com. I mean, it, this, is a, this is a strange thing to write in a code because like, it, it could be funny like in, in the allegorical sense, but to write it in code is, I mean, and I, look, again, probably this might happen with horses, but I... I don't know, like get to work <laughs> watching your horse get sad. Um, I have to I, imagine that this was also like a topic of conversation for him quite frequently, like with his wife to the point where it probably was quite annoying. Horses fucking. Yeah. Just like, he's like, do you think they're really in love? <laughs> just like asking her <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> um, okay. So March, he wrote a letter, letter to father park who is still alive at this point um apparently didn't he die last time i can't remember oh yeah he dies at the end of the year here okay cool but i don't think we even i don't think the news gets there yet okay anyway um so yeah i wrote a letter to daniel park um let's see where we should start here okay so we have another whipping here uh then we walked to bird park where uh, i had several of the negroes whipped for stealing the hogs or hogsheads not only whippings, but I think more escapes than last year getting out of hand already in 17. You, you see the need for like a slave catching force um, early on. It seems like his wife also suffers some depression this year after her miscarriage. I, I forget what the more severe examples of that are. I, I, was, was it last year that she like threatened suicide? Uh, or no, she thought she would die um, at at one point this year. I remember. Yeah, and there's just there was a line. I think it's in March where he says, "My wife was melancholy, which made me weep." <laughs> yeah, honestly, if you you could you know if you close the aperture out of the you know being the head of a slave plantation, um, you can find a lot of humanistic. Um, he's feeling it right like he's taking this on at the very end in december there's a we'll cover this more because he's he's 
clearly feeling the burden of this. It's not just a dude's rock thing. This is the feudal responsibility uh, kind of gets to him. And the Marxist econo- economic reason for that is because, you know, the rate of profits tendency to drop, they, all this stuff they're doing about customs and packing and exploiting labor more ex- explicitly can't keep the profit and keep the money rolling in to the extent that it needs to. I mean, ultimately, ultimately bird uh, settles a lot of these debts. So it, it, it it's, he, he's okay. Um, um, but it, it's also true that um, in 1722 in that Limbaugh book, uh, bird is quoted as saying uh, he sold, and this is, you, you see the importance of slavery here and what it's put uh against um bird says he sold land and negroes to to stay the stomach of that hungry magistrate referring to perry i mean obviously that you know most i think i think a lot of people don't uh, i don't think our our approach to teaching american history is conducive to stressing the balance sheet aspect of uh colonialism and capitalism and how that's it you without you don't have um slaves without you don't have the land without the slaves the 22nd i i mentioned a cricket game because of what happens 18 days later um but we have about two o'clock we went to dinner and i ate bacon and fowl in the afternoon uh played at cricket four of a side and mr harrison among us whose uh coach you'll remember went crazy and smashed into bird's mom's grave who looked exceedingly red a great while after it. So they're playing cricket and he looked really red afterwards and he starts getting sick. Um, fast forward six days, the 28th, uh, March, uh, Bert's 36th birthday on the 28th. Uh, he writes, this was my birthday on which I am 36 years old. And I bless God for granting me so many years. I wish I had spent them better. That caught my well, eye like- too. Sorry. <laughs> you go, please. Okay. It's not, it's not too dissimilar for me as like the, him digging up his father, which is, he's like, there's just like internal turn this year. And, you know, you look up like the average lifespan in Virginia for someone of his stature is about 48 years old. So he's not at the end, but he's getting, he can see the end basically. And I think that that's informing a lot of his decisions. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like maybe, seeing his wife and that makes him weep. But I think also, you know, he's a man of his time. So it's like seeing signs and wonders and, and dreams and portents, even though those were like a part of his life before they seem to take on much, a much um, uh, like graver significance than they had before in the diary. And I think he's, you can see him changing almost like that has like, like a mystical flair to a lot of the writing. And I think yeah. that has a lot to do with him kind of this inward looking that he's doing and reviewing of his own life. I read it as as uh, kind of a, a form of false modesty. Actually, um, I didn't think it was genuine. I just thought it was like something that you say to appear sort of like a good Christian penitent person. You know, like oh, I wish wish I wish I'd spent my years better. In the same way that he's he does note times where he's like, I had bad thoughts for which God forgive me, you know, um, instead of having good thoughts and good humor. And 
his diary is full of these little moments of seeming humility, but I wonder how much they're just kind of encoded as part of what a good Christian patriarch was expected to perform at that point. Yeah. Also, you know, he is the kind of guy that writes down uh, compulsively his use of time. Um, yeah. So like, may, I guess it, maybe we shouldn't be super shocked by like him just, it, that's probably just like, it's probably not even that deep for him. It's just like, right. he's always on the grind sort of thing. Um, but maybe it is. I don't know. It, yeah, could it, be, it could be a real confession. But... It, looks, it looks like, you know, from our modern sensibilities, it's very relatable. Um, and you wonder the sense of, that and i i wonder the sense of you know how does uh the awareness of your own debt um do you look does that make you look at like the end of life as closer okay so here's a big uh section from uh the 30th march i rose at three o'clock and ate milk at about four and then we went over the river and we're a horseback by five and so rode fallen creek uh where we got to seven where we found mr GRL getting ready the mill for a wager. This is like a James Fenimore Cooper thing. Uh, getting ready the mill, a wager, uh, and a little after eight o'clock, the mill began to saw and sawed 2,000 feet in five hours and finished the rest in four hours. Uh, more by which we won a wager of 40 pounds of John Woodson, who had laid that the mill could not saw 3,000 feet of planks in 10 hours. I mean, this. I think this stuff is, this is like the, it reminds me of the James Fenimore Cooper, the sort of thing that somebody who's a, a land sort of speculator or not speculator, but landlord at this time would want to be improving. And these sorts of, you know, like the uh, obsessed with the ironworks, um, but making it a competition is very in, uh, interesting to me that this is the thing that they're preoccupied for entertainment almost and betting. I mean, also betting, Everywhere, right up to the top to Queen Anne, who had a significant amount of of uh, gambling debts. Um, everyone playing cards. I mean, we talked about it a little bit last week. Uh, Bird himself loses a lot of money. So now we get to some another one of the mystical sections on the 31st. Miss, Mrs. Burwell dreamed this night that she saw a person that with money scales weighed time and declared that there was no more than 18 pennies worth of time to come, which seems to be a dream with some significance, either concerning the world or a sick person. Interesting. I mean, that I love that dream. I, one, I just wish people wrote down their dreams, honestly, because it tells you, I think a lot about their imagination. Um, Like I, I, I never, you know, you talk about theoretically about like Freudian dream analysis and that sort of stuff. I honestly didn't really, get to me because all the meaning seems subjective and, but, but it's still extremely suggestive. I think that like what, what you're counting your, first of all, the way in the scales, nobody has those dreams anymore because stuff isn't weighed like that. I'd be very surprised if people do, but there, there was one in 1709 and this one too, it's money on the scales and that has something to do with time that I, I don't know. I think that's amazing. Yeah, that dream is the the specificity of the description as well is actually quite. Um, it, it kind of gives me chills just thinking about the fact that we know that this one person had this dream 
1710, and she was able to communicate it to another person who wrote it down. It's just amazing. And this, yeah, it's like, like you say, the specificity of the 18 pennies. And we'll just go into April. Mr. Harrison's illness is drawing crowds of people to come visit him because it's feared that he's nearing the end. On the 10th, I sent to inquire after Mr. Harrison received word that he died about four o'clock this morning, which completed the 18th day of his sickness, according to Mrs. Burwell's dream. Exactly. It is genuinely spooky because at first I'm like, no, it's not. And I went back and counted. It's like, okay, the 22nd. Oh, no, that is nine to the end of the month. And oh, it's the 10th. No, but you don't have that full day. So it's literally 18 days. And, the, and he wrote that down in the middle of it, at the end of the month when he's most reflective, he wrote that dream. It's, if you want to believe- this dream is incredibly prescient for the rise of capitalism as we know yes. it today. Like thinking about, it's almost too on the nose. It's like I money, agree. time is money. Your time is their money. I 100% you know? agree. And I think there's another one later that's also like that, by the women particularly. Birds' dreams are often like I saw something in the sky. He had an interesting one uh, last year where he said, um, you know, about the wife. But, um, yeah, I mean, the dreams are just amazing. Probably the most um, interesting sort of imaginatively in terms of like connecting with these people as actual humans on the planet earth like what kind of dreams they have is i don't know there's something about it um so yeah dies 18 days and that that prediction is written right in the middle of that so very spooky stuff a lot of sloop business through the rest of april then he goes to williamsburg he's lobbying to become maryland governor um um there are some negroes tried for treason two of them were tried and convicted uh, I wrote a letter to England and went to court again. This is on the 21st. About three o'clock, I returned to my chambers again and found above a girl who I persuaded to go with me into my quarters, but she would not. And then he later commits and clean this. Now, I don't think there's any sexual assaults in this year. I no, don't want to speak- He's just ramping up. He's just getting ready for the following um, years. But I love that, that he, you know, he has a temptation. It's thwarted. So he commits his own uncleanness. Yes. <laughs> and then he says, I had good good health, bad thoughts, and good humor. <laughs> yeah. You can tell it's when he goes to Williamsburg. Like, <sighs> he's, got, he's like riding his horse, and he's just getting randier and randier as, as the city approaches. Um, so he just bothers some, some <laughs> uh, staff worker. Um, council business at the end of the month. There's a new play, also some college business. May talks about drunken people. Uh, he doesn't do as much drinking. He more comments on other people's drunkenness, which is in a little bit snobbish way, but this is kind of funny. Uh, some people came to the court and got drunk in defiance of the sickness. This is very um, COVID-19 party energy. In defiance of the sickness and the bad weather, am- among whom was Joe Harward and Mr. Dennis, two great examples of virtue. Uh, Robin Burke uh, came to account with me to put me out of humor with his roguery and his wife's term begins. He, he writes. Um, so we're back at, you know, making sure um, she's um, cataloged um, <laughs> cries reading uh, doctor reading uh, Tillotson. Um, his son Park gets sick on the 12th of May. And yes, yeah, so he, he does have some more fights with his wife. 
Oh yeah. The 26th. We talk about like two on the nose, uh, um, drawing the line between two different concepts between, and I just want to draw like slavers and drunken souses. Um, I said my prayers and ate milk and, and strawberries with Captain Posford for breakfast. He told me that a ship was arrived with Negroes and offered his service to fetch my wine from Williamsburg. So like, that's the business. So this, and before he goes and buys slaves on his first, um, in the evening, Mr. GRL came with a heavy heart and cried on my reproaching him for staying so long in Carolina and not leaving his brother in his stead as he promised me and offered to make me any reparation. He told me of the breaking of the dam, which was like my fortune. The dam is always a problem. And, uh, Mr. GRL gets tasked with fixing that. But on June 1st, we mentioned that a ship was arrived with Negroes. So, in the evening, I took a walk and met with with and met the new Negroes, which Mr. Bland had bought for me, the number of twenty six for twenty three pounds apiece. Bland is one of the is uh, we mentioned earlier, but he's he's in probably the closest business associate of Bird, constantly talking with him um, on his way in and out of Williamsburg. Um, Bland's father was among the chief rebels in Bacon's Rebellion, uh, mentioned specifically by uh, Governor Barkley as one of these guys who just got here and is starting a revolution. So Bland buys 26 slaves, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> quite a lot, uh, I would say. I think one slave is far too many, but I mean, this one guy just goes and does, and $23 a piece. That's easily turned into profit. In the afternoon, I read some English about five o'clock. Robin Hicks and Robin Munford came to discourse about the skin trade. Again, birds and old Indian trading family. We gave them some mutton and salad for supper. In the evening, I did not walk because of my company. Robin Hicks asked me to pay 70 pounds for two Negroes. Again, he paid $23 a piece for that. So that is a profit of $14. Seven apiece. Uh, Robin Hicks asked me to pay 70 pounds for two Negroes, which he intended to buy off John Evans, which I agreed to in hope of gaining the trade. So like just immediate, like the commoditization of these people is just what it is. Uh, that's the primary meaning to bird. Uh, I neglected to say my prayers, but was griped in my belly and had indifferent humor. Um, the son park dies on June 3rd. Uh, after a lot of sickness. So wife has, to be fair to her, a miscarriage and the death of her son, uh, who was named after uh, your father. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, Bird, you know, mentions that she has a harder time with it uh, over the course of it, which is he, he gets sad, but then he's like, not as bad as my wife. Or is like, I was better today, but my wife was still pretty upset, but she kept it within bounds. Um, very managerial of her wife's, his wife's grief. Uh, yeah, and he's very uh, resigned to it. He immediately says, like, God's will be done, you know. Yeah. Get on with it, dance your dance, drink your chocolate for breakfast, or whatever it is. Right. There's, oh yeah, here's the... Um, the, on June 14th, where he's very charitable, a poor woman brought her daughter over and was troubled with the va- that was troubled with the vapors extremely. I let her know that if her daughter would come and stay here for two months, I would endeavor to cure her. 
I mean, that's a generous offer. Um, Sounds dangerous for that girl. <laughs> yeah, well, then we get to like three days later. Uh, LSN was whipped for beating his wife. Okay, we don't like whipping, but also don't beat your wife, LSN. Again, we don't have some of the vowels for some of these names. But then Jenny was whipped for being a whore. And it's like, okay, Bert. Um, Jenny for being his whore. So LSN is beating his wife and apparently sleeping with Jenny. Oh, his whore. Oh. Yeah. So it's a whole thing. I mistranscribed that. Okay. Jenny's getting beaten all the time, I feel like. Jenny does get beaten a lot, yeah. I think she got branded with a hot iron. Um, I think that was her. Um, at one point, well, we'll see. Bird loses his temper, for which he's sorry later, but we'll get to that. I think that is with Jenny. Um, here's another dream on the 18th. In the afternoon, my wife told me a dream she had two nights she thought she saw a scroll in the sky in the form of a light cloud with writing on it it ran it ran extremely fast from west to east with great swiftness the writing could not be read but there was a woman before her that told her there would be a great dearth because of want of rain and after that a pestilence uh, for that the seasons were changed and time inverted now seasons changed i immediately think of climate change um when it comes to that but again another very interesting dream a scroll across the entire sky um yeah it's, it's interesting to see you know that this kind of it's one thing to hear these people talk about their religious imagery or like their religious imagery that they're steeped in but to see it like affect the way they see the world like that like we were saying earlier with these dreams you know like in the freudian sense if like dreams are sublimations on like a larger scale of our internal conflict. You can see that kind of this rise of mercantile capitalism when these people who are at the cutting edge of it and can just constantly dreaming about (laughs) this like coming apocalypse, basically that, that will like change every make, turn the world upside down. It's like, it is happening. And they just, they only have this religious Christian language to describe it. It's quite fascinating to make some 3d the most charitable reading is like, they know something is fundamentally wrong. Then they can't place their finger on it. And it's like, well, maybe it's like, mm-hmm. you just did a massive slave trade for human like yeah. lives. And it's never like, it, it occasionally becomes like later on, we've alluded to it a few times, but he's like, he thinks that this is all happening because of his sins. And it's, I think he's thinking of his Williamsburg uh, shenanigans. I don't think he's thinking of his you know, place in the economic structure. We got another dream on the 21st of June. About five nights since I dreamed, I saw a flaming star in the air, which I was much frightened and called some others to see it. He, this happens a lot where he sees something and calls other people to see it. And by the time they come, it's not there. I wonder what that means. Um, Wait, with this thing about how interested he is in dreams, I, I think... We know that the the kind of royalist um, Anglican culture of Virginia was a lot more superstitious, obviously, than the Puritan culture um, that was unfolding at the same time that was sort of anti-superstition, right, Alex? But I feel like in this case, the dreams... And the attention to dreams are almost fulfilling the same purpose as like the Puritans' relationship to God. That mm-hmm. it's a very kind of where the Puritans would like individually have a relationship with God that was unmediated by, um, you know, a priest or whatever. 
for Bird and, and the people like him, these dreams are like a way to kind of access that individual sort of subjective mystical experience in a way. I don't know if that's a, a stretch, but you don't hear him well, yeah. talking about God in these terms, right? He doesn't like get really excited about God. He just praises God every day as a matter of course. God is like a manager in in this world, I feel like, or it's like, he's like, God runs a larger plantation. He's the boss that you don't really see. Like he's almost no different than William Byrd, I feel like. Right. Yeah. I think that that connection is true and interesting. You, you think like the Puritan idea is that, you know, you go towards like the veil or, or whatever, and you find that you will never be able to understand it. You'll never be able to understand like God in its totality because it's so abstract. And I think that, so for them that like, it gives them the chance to be like, well, let's build up this world because we're never going to know this, the center of it. It's like unknowable and stark and horrifying. I think that same fear that's projected outwards that the Puritans did on God is, and also in these, for Bird is these images of the power and wrath of the cosmos that it's going to happen and they just have to attune themselves to it. And, you know, it, it shows up both in dreams and importance, like in this, like, you know, a shooting star, anything is like, is showing is like revealing this kind of awesome, uncontrollable power. I feel like for the birds. Yeah. Remember it's not obviously, you know, true story, but um, uh, kind of just illustrative of the fact that the Puritans would distrust this sort of thing in the Scarlet letter, Dimsdale and Hester, they look up and they see a comet, I think it is, or something. And it's like, that's representing them going off, uh, like out of society, basically, if you're starting to like credence, those sorts of visions and yeah, they're all over here. And, but they are like, they, they do seem to come from the same sort of like human impulse as religiosity does. Mm -hmm. I think like, yeah. It, um, okay. So um, yeah. So, uh, for, so I dreamed I saw Flaming Star in the air, which I was much frightened and called some others to see it. But when they came, it disappeared. I fear this pretends some, uh, some judgment to this country, or at least to myself. Um, Governor Spotswood arrived. So that may be a little bit of the anxiety. Spotswood, the guy who takes the job that Bird himself wanted. Um, and remember, um, it was Lord Marlborough, John Churchill, who... Uh, um, as let's go into the Churchills a little bit. And I, I don't have a, I don't have the best grasp of what they are, but basically the favorite, the original favorite is Sarah Churchill of Queen Anne. Um, and she was, uh, credited with helping convince Queen Anne to go with the Protestants in the glorious revolution to bring William of Orange over and to marry Queen Mary, and that's where you get William and Mary. The Churchills were a big part in that, convincing that switch. As we mentioned, there was a battle of Blenheim where the uh, England and the Whigs, particularly, and Churchill um, turned back the French and the Catholics, basically, and it was this massive success. And that's where Colonel Park, he was the first one with the news uh, from that victory to get back to London with and uh, tell Queen Anne. And he wanted to become mayor of Virginia himself and said he got sent to the Leeward Islands and, was, as we talked about last time, was killed in the mob. So, yeah, the Duke of Marlborough, that name 
if it sounds like it should be associated with cigarettes, it's because there's a reason for that. And it goes back to this family. Um, the dukedom of Marlborough was recreated for uh, Church, uh, John Churchill because of his service to William and Mary in that revolution. And also you had Great Marlborough Street uh, renamed in London uh, for that. And that street was where the tobacco company that named Marlborough Cigarettes uh, was headquartered, um, so, or at least had one of their major uh, uh, locations. When you, which I find so interesting, right? Like one of the the brand of cigarette of the 20th century, and it's all because of you know Winston Churchill's ancestors, um, and you know Sarah Churchill, um, and you can kind of see like. There's no real side of the people on this because a lot of the downfall of the Whigs and the Marlboroughs uh, and the meaning the Churchills, um, um, the Duke and Duchess of Marlborough, they were, um, was because of war wariness. Not everyone in England wanted to go as, um, you know, the Puritans wanted to just straight to Rome and just burn everything down. Um, like people were kind of getting a little bit sick with that. And and also, it's probably a bad um, idea for the Churchills to start making the giant palace based on the Battle of Blenheim if you still want to, like, you know, keep that march going. Wait to make the giant. Anyway, um, so that's who the, the Marlboros are. And there's a, a one time here where Bird dreams that he was good with his guy Marlborough, with his Lord Marlborough, which um, it's in, it's interesting that he looks as that is as his Lord, which makes a lot of sense from the Whig side of things. And we'll later get into uh, one of the controversies between Whigs and Tories that ends uh, or kind of culminates in 17 at the end of 1710 here. The 24th, we have another uh, uh, slave runs away, Negro woman. Um, they, on the 25th, they couldn't find her. They found her hoe on the church land. Um, also on this day, he got, he gets a sore ass, I think from cricket, and he has, his wife has to anoint his fundament. Um, he gets piles, I thought. Is that what it is? Okay. That, that. <laughs> and then she has to, yeah, she has to anoint his, his bum very okay. with hot linseed oil, which does it good. You can't yeah. deny that this couple has their intimate moments. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Damn, this woman's been through a lot. Um, yeah. uh, Sister Brains, uh, children are disappointingly ordinary. He meets them. Uh, they're also soon to be whipped a number of times, I will add. Um, they found the, the uh, slave woman um, that they had doubt had drowned herself. Get some bad news about tobacco and uh, um, there's some business with Micaiah Perry at the end of June there. July. That slave woman ran away again with the bit on her mouth. We talked about the bit last week, just the horrible like contraption you put in the mouth. Um, and she is escaped for a while until the eighth, where she's found and tied, but ran away again in the night. So just desperation here. Um, um, on the ninth, after church, I invited nobody home because I designed to break that custom that my people may go to church. I, uh, in the afternoon, my wife and I had a terrible quarrel about the things she had come in uh, shopping. Um, but at length, uh, she submitted because she was in the wrong. For my part, I kept my temper well. He, 
I don't know if he ever doesn't um, with his wife. He always thinks he's in the right when it comes to fights with his wife. I do like how he, he charts his temper. He's like reviewing his debate performance with his wife, like it, some sort of like YouTube edge Lord. It really <laughs> like, is. Great recap. <laughs> Just imagine him saying like, you're dish galloping right now or something to her, whatever those stupid debate phrases are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then a guy comes, he told me, uh, that my two overseals above fought and that Joe Wilkinson was to blame for desiring Mr. GRL to bid for some things at the outcry. And before anybody could bid above him, Joe gave him the good. So a bullshit auction causes a fight between the overseers. Um, um, Billy brain and I had a quarrel on the 14th because I would not, because he would not learn his books and I whipped him extremely about seven o'clock. Uh, um, another runaway is brought home Oh, and then here on the 15th, my wife, against my will, caused little Jenny to be burned with a hot iron, which for which I quarreled with her. Again, uh, July was a bad month for uh, relations with your um, bonded labor. On the 19th, uh, another slave runs away, or what's the same one that was just captured? It says it's either a Negro boy or Betty. Um, again, Bird doesn't write out all of the uh, words. Uh, another uh, dream that's a little bit less mystical on the 21st, about eight nights ago, I dreamed that several of my Negroes lay sick on the floor and one Indian among the rest. And now it came exactly to pass. Now he just says several, so that's not most precise prediction, but another uh, prediction he thinks uh, about illness and you know, bad tidings. There's a really great description of his uh sex with his wife in this month where he says in the afternoon my wife and I had a little quarrel which I reconciled with a flourish then she read a sermon in Dr. Tillotson to me Mm -hmm. a pillow talk she's reading a sermon to him and then he says it is to be observed that the flourish was performed on the billiard table (laughs) yeah I love that it is to be observed. That's a, that's the first time they'll uh, have sex on the billiard table. They do it again later, but I love that it is to be observed because that's that's that seems like pride. I it's, think a little bit. Yeah. Oh God, that passive voice is um. Yeah. Again, dudes rock is. <laughs> I just love that after she reads the sermon to him, you know, the same Doctor Tillotson whose sermons move him to tears. Yeah, I, that is interesting how they mix that. Um, yeah, and makeup sex as well. What day was that? Uh, I forget. I didn't note the day oh, okay. exactly. Sorry. Oh, yeah, no, it's the 30th of July. Right, right. It is, yeah. Uh, so that we can move on to August uh, here. Um, uh, his daughter sick. Oh, there's another like in, like problems of slave drivers. Uh, Doctor Bowman on the fifth came to tell me that my Negro boy, which he had, was too big for him to manage, and therefore desired me to send for him, which I did. Uh, also on the fifth is a library flourish, so they're getting it in um, in August, um, in July. Um, he pays his boat rate sixty pounds on when they agreed on fifty pounds, so a little bit of generosity there. Um, the uh, slave that ran away a few weeks ago is brought back um, as a core with his wife on the 12th about her servants that did little work. 
And then he writes a long, smart letter to Mr. Perry, wherein I found several faults with his management of the tobacco I sent him and with mistakes he had committed in my affairs. Um, Bird lived with the Perrys in London in the 1690s, but there's suspicion by historians that, and maybe even Bird had it himself, that he was always getting fucked by the Perrys. Um, and was that a reference, Matt, to socking? Like, was he, is he basically saying... There's too much tobacco being stolen under Perry's watch or. Yeah. We, well, we definitely know Perry's were like fraudsters. Um, and, and, and also it was the main, it was the largest uh, tobacco importer from the colonies into London, but there's a section from Limbaugh profits had fallen for this merchant prince. His father, this is about uh, Makai Perry. His father was used to a volume of trade ranging between 360 and 450 hogsheads tobacco a year. By 1720, the family's dealings had sunk to 130 hogsheads. In such circumstances, he took a number of steps. He defrauded the king's revenue by more than half by colluding with the Thames landwaiters to short-weight his imports, a practice known as hickory puckery, thereby reducing his duty, and then by bribing the searcher to long-weight the same consignment on re-export, thereby increasing his drawback, a practice known as puckery hickory. Perry still took a loss of uh, 150 pounds in 1722. So yeah, um, probably, yeah, like don't scam me. If you're going to like fuck with people, don't do it uh, on me, I think basically. Uh, so yeah, Burgess says, this fall is going to be very Williamsburg heavy fall. Oh, Grace, you still there? Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. I thought, for a second, I thought both of you guys might have been uh, frozen. Um, um my cut uh a lot like i said a lot of um a lot of williamsburg um there's the new governor spotswood there he has to be they, they have some confrontations with spotswood uh, maybe we'll get to that a little bit later but basically he represents the crown so these lands are they going to be ruled by the assembly or are they going to be ruled by the crown and this is another example of like you know monarchy is bad but the king's lands were more open to the common people than were any lord's lands, uh, right? Like that's how commons enclosure kind of worked. And so it's not like there's no side here necessarily, right? Like the, again, and also like the Whigs and the Perry family, the massive slave mat that could not exist without the slave trade, right? So like they're against monarchy, but like you know. There's no good guys necessarily. Um, I mean, let's, if, if you're Thomas Jefferson, it's clear who the right good guys are, I guess. But um, um, there's some more labor management stuff. I won't get into too deeply. Basically, threatens an overseer, um, and he also uh, had a severe quarrel with little Jenny. Little Jenny, poor woman and beat her too much for which i was sorry that's rare um that you see that kind of um regret contrition yeah yeah um and the very next day um oh no or i guess a week later um another dream i dreamed last night that the lightning almost put out one of my eyes that i won a ton full of money and might win more if I ventured, and that I was great with my Lord Marlborough. So as we mentioned, the Churchill's Lord Marlborough. Um, 
so he's having dreams of uh, this is pretty easy he's having dreams of like success and ambition right yeah that one i don't know has like any subtext to it (laughs) it reminds me i had this like dream once that like in my 20s where i had like beat up people like ninjas or something in like a in a uh gymnasium and then my dad and my boss were there and they were both like i am proud of you and i started like waking up being like man like <laughs> you don't even i don't need any i don't need any analysis of that it's just humiliating <laughs> yeah as i said like the women's dreams i think are a little bit more poetic um than, than the dudes um um yeah i had a dream of marlboro he told me that i rock <laughs> <laughs> No, and he gave me a lot of money. <laughs> also, some courtesans. Um, uh, Thirty-one. Eugene was whipped for cheating his work, and so was little Jenny. I mean, you already just overdid it. Maybe you could let little Jenny off with one. Um, September. My wife and I had a quarrel because she neglected to give the child the bitter bark in the evening. I read a sermon of Doctor Sacheverell. Now, Doctor Sacheverell, uh, interesting guy. Um, Tory extremist basically uh, stood up for the monarchy and wanted the uh, uh, the crown to go back to the. I guess how would you characterize it? The well, Jacobite. I guess he doesn't believe Queen Anne is like he, he doesn't accept the revolution. Basically, um, the glorious revolution, and uh, doesn't accept that you could ever go against royalty like that. So basically, a monarchist. Uh, to die for two monarchists for Queen Anne, I guess is the easy way to say that. And uh, there's a lot of his stands, uh, particularly women early on in the trial, uh, follow him very enthusiastically. Um, I actually have, let's see here, a section from something that I can play here. Um, Queen Anne herself tried to stay a little bit neutral. She was very concerned with not, uh, again, like parties were newly emerging. And even though uh, she owed her existence as queen to the Whigs, she didn't want to appear as if she wasn't also uh, ruling for the Tories. So I have this book, The Favorite by Ophelia Field. Here's a little bit of a taste of the trial of uh, Chevrel. On the 27th of February, from six o'clock in the morning, carriages, sedan chairs and coaches littered New Palace Yard outside Westminster Hall. The doors would not open for several hours, but queues were already forming for what was set to be the best show in town and another turning point in Sarah's political career. The trial of Dr. Henry Chevrel. By nine, the crush in the surrounding streets was suffocating. Those who held one of the precious tickets, each printed with an ornate flower border, waved them above their heads and pushed forward. Most peers had guest tickets, so a thriving black market had sprung up, and many had paid high prices for a seat. The uninvited crowds were from every social stratum, and journalists reported in particular on the packs of rowdy working-class women who were Tory supporters of the defendant. As the peers arrived, the women hooted at the recognisable wigs, walking in order of rank. Constables had to link arms to keep the throng back so that the peers could enter unmolested. Sarah was among the first to arrive. About 2,000 spectators crammed into the Gothic Hall, described by Defoe as a great barn. 
special scaffolding had been erected on Wren's instructions, with spectator seating. Members of Parliament sat on nine terrace benches built along the left-hand side, with bishops in the front row. Minor gentry sat on matching benches to the right, with ladies in that side's front row, and the peers down the middle of the room. There was a gallery high on the right for more spectators. Behind the Lord Chancellor and the twelve judges, to the common side of this makeshift amphitheatre, and near to where the foreign diplomats had been squeezed in, a special box had been built for the Queen and her ladies of the bedchamber. It had a canopy, and could be curtained from view during the proceedings if Anne so chose. Sarah walked straight to this box, and stood where she could survey the hall. At ten o'clock, there was an audible roar outside, as Dr. Sir arrived in his chariot with large glasses. He stood up in it and waved to his fans. In his thirties, he was a tall man with a certain sex appeal, despite his bulging eyes. Sarah remembered him as dapper, having a good assurance, clean gloves, white handkerchiefs well managed. That day there was nothing defensive or distraught about his appearance. He acted like an ambassador making his entry, rather than like a criminal conducted to his trial. His footmen in bright yellow-green liveries threw coins to the crowds, which excited them even further. Wafted along on this wave of enthusiastic support, he entered and waited in the atrium to be called, after the court officials were seated. The decision to impeach the doctor had been taken at the end of 1709. For years his sermons had been remarkable only for the intensity of the hatred he expressed against the dissenters and Whigs. He preached the doctrine of passive obedience, meaning the duty of loyalty to rulers divinely appointed, even when one did not believe that they deserved their power. Sarah rejected this idea outright, and she had practiced this opposition on both a grand, revolutionary, and a small, epistolary scale. Sir Chevrolet's sermons were not particularly well written, but his voice and manner conveyed them powerfully, dangerously. In July 1706, he had preached against occasional conformity at All Saints Church, Leicester. In 1709, he had made two notable appearances, first in April at the Derby Assizes, and then in St. Paul's on the 5th of November. The Anna- so, yeah, you get a sense of uh, kind of what this guy was uh, interested in. So, Chavarel. So, and it's interesting because on, for the most part, Bird is going to side with the Whigs, but there's the, if you were to side with the Tories, if I was to have to form a argument, if I was, if I was like a bot for the Tories online, uh, it would be it'd be an anti-war one. It's war wariness, um, basically. And even Bird himself says, like, we need peace because this is just killing our business. Um, but so that's when he, he starts reading Sacheverell uh, or the stuff about Sacheverell in September. Um, we have a bunch of uh, um, four slaves run away on the 12th. Indian Ned runs away on the 8th and is brought back on the 11th of September. The governor is going to come visit uh, for Westover, Bird's plantation for the first time. Um, So Captain Burbage is is the captain whose boat is selected by Bird to carry him, sends boats as him, uh, or fires the guns as they come up the river. Here's the description of the day, first day with uh, um, Governor Spotswood, and it's a little bit picaresque. Uh, just as we got in our horses, it began to rain hard. However, this did not discourage the governor, but away we rode to the men. It rained half an hour, and the governor mustered them. All the while, he presented me to the people to be their colonel and commander-in-chief. About three o'clock, we returned to the house, and as many officers as could sit at the table 
stayed to dine with the governor and the rest to take part of the hogshead in the churchyard. We had a good dinner well served, which the governor seemed to be well pleased. I ate venison for dinner. In the evening, the company all went away and we went for a walk and found a comic freak of a man that was drunk and hung on the pails, pails being fence. Um, then we went home and played at Piquet and I won at pool. And he later gets a huzzah from all the troops and they're like drunk notes, their drunken rowdiness. Um, on October now, um, more whippings on the eighth. He whipped Sue Brains, his niece, for shooting herself. I believe that's supposed to be. Um, does not like soiling people soiling themselves. Uh, uh, does uh, Bird? And then uh, Anaka for lying. Anaka gets beat, and Prue for losing the scroll. Um, so he must have had her take some scroll. Um, then he goes back to Williamsburg on the ninth. A lot of coffee houses he has to beat his man for falling asleep when he's trying to come home late at night um uh loses 35 shillings on a horse race there's a lot of cards coffee houses um on the 29th he amusingly says he has more wit than normal which is a funny bit of self-awareness to have and the final two months of the year 1710 um Again, a lot like last year, he was at his cousins, the Custises stuck um, because the wind was bad. This is all in Williamsburg every night at the coffee house playing cards. Um, we also are close to the first usage of Roger, but I don't want to get, get you too excited. It's not in November. Um, <laughs> oh, here's so. On the 13th, he writes, Colonel Diggs sent for a white Negro for us to see who, except the color, was featured like other Negroes. She told us that in her country, which is called Abo near Calabar, there were many whites as well as blacks. Um, and then the footnote is Abo is a town that goes miles from the sea on the Niger River. Calabar is the old name for the region now known as Nigeria. Um, this interest in a white Negro calls to mind Bird's first contribution to the Royal Society, an article on an albino Negro. It's so interesting, that fixation, right? When you think about all that's getting determined in terms of race, like the scientific racism, literally the Royal Society is like, what is going on with that? That is a problem. Like that is a paradox that needs to be worked out. Um, from the in the interest of white supremacy, um, so it's no surprise that it causes it it, it, it interested Bird when he was younger and Colonel Diggs now. We have another uh, instance of a child's clothes catching fire, uh, which is brutal. Um, on the thirteenth, um, uh, one of Bird's slaves found dead, escaped slave found dead, Negro woman. He writes, found dead. Uh, 14, we have several disputes in the council concerning coin. The governor on several occasions discovered a real prerogative thing. Again, the governor not wanting to give the assembly uh, the prerogative on certain issues. Um, and then he starts doing this. He gets a little tricks tricky uh, in Williamsburg and starts doing these little pranks. Uh, so 15... At about four o'clock, we went to dinner and I ate salt fish. Then we went to the coffee house where I wrote a sham letter to Dr. Coke under the name of Mary Fox. Soon after he came and the letter was delivered to him. So 
that's the first first little uh, instance of this. I just think that city life, he is not conducive to city life. It's too, it's like when someone asked Shelby Foote if he'd ever moved to LA and he's like, no, I would never, I could never finish a civil war series. It's like, you know, I'd, I'd fall in love too many times, something insane like that. <laughs> and I do feel like he, he's a pretty awful person, but at least he's on like some sort of straight and narrow, like at least he's like productive and the city, he just absolutely goes to shit. Like he cannot control himself. You are, I think really correct. And this is why I want to get my hands on the diary of him in London uh, about a half a decade after this, because that's where he apparently is. He's so bad that his friend has to like on certain nights, walk him home and keep him out of trouble, out of brothels, basically. Um, well, he also like has a horror of eating more than one kind of food in a meal. <laughs> right. Like he, he really does have no self-control. It feels like that's another one of his guardrails that he puts on himself. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so um, yeah, especially like coming off of like his like birthday thing of like oh, I wish I could live my life better, and you kind of see that you know like in a, in action whether it's in action or not, and then just watching him just completely like go off whatever wagon he's supposed to be on within like days of being in this city, just being like I'm gonna prank this guy, fuck this, <laughs> yeah. And so um, uh, the twenty fourth. Then I went to court where we did some business. I directed a letter to Nat Burwell with a lampoon in it, and he threw it into the Capitol, and Mr. Simons found it and gave it to him, which put the House of Burgesses into a ferment. But I discovered to nobody that I had a hand in it. I went to my chamber in the Capitol and danced my dance. About four o'clock, we went to dinner, and I ate boiled pork. Then we went to the coffee house where I played cards and I lost my money, but was diverted to see some of the Burgesses so concerned at the lampoon. About 10 o'clock, which is fun. Lampoon is such an old fashioned word. Like the, uh, the Harvard lampoon, obviously, or national lampoon. Um, it, it's, it's, it's so funny that he goes to the coffee house and he's like, gosh, people are really upset by that. I, I would love to know what it actually said. Um, about 10 o'clock, I went home and there I said my prayers. Yeah. Uh, the, and then fast forward two days. Um, and I forgot. George Mason. Do we know what George Mason did in the revolution? I, I don't have my revolution history. Is he like the whites of their eyes thing? But I, I'll look it up in a second. But actually, I'm going to look it up now. Just the top line, George Mason. That's Gansevoort, right? Who said that? Was it? I think so. Okay, so yeah, George Mason, who was famously not for, who famously opposed ratification and also authored um, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which served as the basis for the Bill of Rights. So important founding father, ancestor comes up here um, with the same name as, as George Mason. So in the afternoon, and this is two, this, this is uh, the 26th, he does the lampoon on the 24th. In the afternoon, we sat and drank a bottle of cider till about five o'clock and then adjourned to the coffee house. Before we had been there long, in came George Mason, very drunk, and told me before all the company that it was I that wrote the lampoon and that Will Robinson dropped it. I put it off as well as I could, but it was all in vain, for he swore it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Does he say that Will? He doesn't mention. The, I don't know if the Will Robinson is right, but for some reason he knew that Bird was uh, responsible for it, which is funny. 
Um, Pretty shameful of Bird to be outwitted by a man he describes as like incredibly drunk that he couldn't like cover himself a little bit. He's just too much of a truth teller when that he, George Mason's wasted, I guess. Look, that's that's before people realize that you can say I believe I swear to God and be lying about it. <laughs> <laughs> but he swore it. So it's like, damn, it is. Uh, you're right. He swears to God. <laughs> um um, you get some, uh, now some spots wood and I don't quite, okay. So about 10 o'clock, I went to the coffee house where I found several of the council and from thence went to the Capitol where we read several taxes and the governor sent them several messages, which they did not like the footnote speculates this, a message from spots would likely to arouse the ire of Virginians was one urging the repeal of a high duty on Negro slaves, a trade that her majesty was graciously pleased to countenance. So basically Spotswood wanted more slaves, but not uh, tax, not more tax revenue from it, I think is uh, Spotswood pointed out that the Virginia law also makes a distinction between Virginian and British owners, a thing reprehensible to her majesty. I, I don't quite understand that summary of it, but it seems to me that they want more slaves um, and in a way to do that, they'll lower the duty on it, which uh, you know, thank you, Queen Anne, for I guess making it easier to, uh, you know, lowering those dread that damn red tape on the slave trade. Um, we get to December on the eighth. It's, again, it's more council and coffee houses on the eighth. So a few weeks after, he caused the lampoon to be directed at Colonel Smith, um, and so he didn't really. I don't know. He's just bored basically, or just among society. Like I I'm trying to understand what that impulse is though. Like you want to see people like, does he enjoy seeing that people flummoxed? Um, like, I don't know. That's, it's such an interesting, cause it seems like it would just cause anxiety. Like I don't want to be called out, but it's also like, just it's, it's clearly a creative impulse also and are almost like an artistic one. Like I I'm, I'm drawing up these shams to hope that like Ben Franklin did this shit all the time, actually. Right. Like that's what he wrote under so many pen names and false names with little ironies and stuff sprinkled in. Um, yeah. I think it's not too different from the diary itself, which I do. I, there is some sort of like, you know, reach towards like the literary or storytelling that he never really, I think actually either actualized or never brings up in his diary, but it, it comes up in different forms, I think, in different moments in his life. Again, they are, uh, the criminal court begins. There's a man who killed a woman after a new fashion that they go to see. There's a new way of psalm singing uh, introduced in church, and that leads to a quarrel with his wife um, about it, who I think seems to like the new way. Um, and then he says he's right in the in the moment, but then the wife gets the way afterwards and says they're all resigned to it. Um, but that's, it. I, that's the interesting thing is like, I feel like my dad remembers Latin mass for Catholics, but, but when the church does something like a major programmatic change like that, it is pretty um, big deal for uh, a lot of the people there. Um, oh, Joe Wilkinson gets fired on the 20th. Um, 
about 11 o'clock, we went over the river and learned that Joe Wilkinson was not on the plantation, but was gone with Mr. LaForce to look after his hogs. He had spoiled all the tobacco by my house or by house burn and carried several things that belonged to me home to his house uh, for which uh, uh, for all which reasons I wrote for him to forbear coming any more to my service and appointed Tom Turpin to take care of everything till I sent an overseer. That whole that detail about him taking the tools and stuff to his house, that's, that reminds me of Limbaugh. That, that's the capitalist's tools. And like, actually, maybe if you were doing your work uh, to Bird's uh, you know, standards, he wouldn't give a shit. But once, if he needs to exercise that right to get rid of you, he can. Um, uh, and so he replaces Joe... Uh, Wilkinson and I believe the first use of Roger on the 21st however I rogered my wife when we got to bed and uh, I feel like he picks up the language from some dude in Williamsburg that he has coffee with or something well so um, uh, on the 26th he says I wrote a key of uh, of the new Atlantis and I wonder, well, I guess I could search the New Atlantis if Roger is in there. I mean, he's been at court. We know this entire fall, so it very easily could have heard it in society. Um, uh, uh, one quick detail before I get on the New Atlantis thing, though, which this is a very small, but I think a clear encapsulation of labor and um, gifts. Um, so on the 23rd, in the evening, a Negro came from above with venison and wild turkey and told me all was well there. At night, I wrote a letter to the governor to send the present of the venison and turkey. So, like, it, one, it's interesting to me that um, he will have Negroes, as he calls them, um, uh basically communicating between different his different properties with stuff. So they're tasked. So this guy's bringing down venison and Turkey, a gift for the governor of the thing. Uh, and, and it's just it, like, what, and then the bird can, you know, take it the next five yards. So like to use a football metaphor, right? Like the uh, exploited laborer is, and you know, everybody else is taking that the 95 yards and then it gets into bird's hands and he can say, Oh, look at this, this venison and this wild Turkey that I got you. Isn't it an amazing gift? It's the same thing when they're gifting each other Madeira, right? Like you, when you actually think about the, uh, the production of that, it's horrendous. Like, like, or any kind of sugar product, you have the, like the slave trade, obviously. Right. Um, and it, I just imagine like Governor Spotswood and his coach crossing that black guy, taking the gift with him, um, mud splashing on him or something like that. And it's like, and and you think of the way food is delivered and all the Amazon stuff now. It's like um, a whole the like the um, the whole your children will be born into chattel slavery stuff has been done away with, and that's good. And you know, um, but a lot of these sort of dynamics, it, like nobody seemed, that doesn't seem weird to them. It's like, Oh, you got me this bird. You got me this venison. I don't know. It just seemed, it, 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 I don't know. Um, 
I just looked up Roger, the etymology, and uh-huh. apparently the slang verb sense of it to copulate was only attested from 1711. So this is this- an earlier version. This is maybe, uh, you know, one of the sources. <laughs> um, it, says, it says that um, it was a slang meaning penis from 1650, but that it only became a verb uh, in the early 18th century. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, however, I, that, that is, it's, it's very casual the way he tosses it off. Um, but then he does go to that pretty regularly after this. Um, uh, again, in mid-December, around Christmas time, a slave woman gets sick, goes mad, he says, and dies. 26, I wrote a key to the New Atlantis. Um, and let's talk about this New Atlantis briefly. This, is, this goes back to Queen Anne. Um, and the Whigs and the Tories. The New Atlantis, the New Atlantis was an uh, allegorical satire by the first female uh, political journalist in, the, in England, Della Rivier Manley. Um, the name... Uh, it's it's sort of a dystopia based on sort of hypocrisy uh, and corruption. The name is a play on Francis Bacon's Utopia, uh, the New Atlantis in 1627. Basically, an attack on Whigs and John Churchill. There's a lot of court scandal and sort of sex stuff going on in it. Um, very interesting style. Um, basically, details court scandal using allegory um, to get around libel and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, I, which I think is fascinating. If someone broke news now in an allegorical way that everybody could decode though, I think it would go, it would be, that would be a, in my opinion, one sure way to get, uh, like canonized in the modern sense. Um, but it would definitely make us all more intelligent. Yeah, exactly. We had to, actually had to think. <laughs> he has to write a key out for it himself like earlier and um and then he can read it a few days later after he's figured out who everybody is um but yeah this was attacking the churchills basically for being corrupt and um a lot of lasciviousness uh and um i don't know i guess i don't know much about manly but she reminds me a little bit of afro ben um a sort of uh um because she wrote about uh, James II too. Um, but but that, again, that's such a, that is a fascinating way to write about history. And um, I tried reading it and it's, it's too allegorical. Like <laughs> I don't have the vocabulary to really be that interested, but it's, it's very suggestive also. Um, so yeah, he's, he's preoccupied with this new Atlantis. Um, um, uh, like on the 29th, um, well, 29th, we have one of the 29th, we have what we alluded to earlier of his sort of crisis almost. So a lot of a lot of people are ill this December, a lot of his slaves and servants and stuff. Uh, two more people sick come down. These poor pe- And he says, these poor people suffer for my sins. God, forgive me all my offenses and restore them to their health. If it be consistent with his holy will. And. Yeah, I I found it 
I I don't like Berg, but I found that a very, um, a, I guess, evocative bit of emotion there, like that he's feeling responsibility for this, which he definitely has, um, and I guess just. Tr- that it's sort of coming out in this religious way. I mean, obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, but I don't know. What do you guys have to say about that? I, yeah, I find, I, I do find him quite relatable at certain moments. And I think that the diary as a whole is, it, it does present like a fairly fine kind of emotional texture. Um he might just have like seasonal affective disorder too. Like uh, in the same day, he says, in the evening, I took a walk about the plantation and was very melancholy on the count of the unkindness of my wife. Um, and then he says, I read several leaves, which remind me of Whitman. Um, I haven't seen people refer to pages as leaves, but I read several leaves of the Atlantis and was much affected with it. Um, which again, you know, he would have wig. This is, this is like reading the, um enemies satire right so like um it's interesting that he says he was affected by it um and there's more sickness he's reading more of the new atlantic uh one final dream here on the 31st some nights this month i dreamed that i saw a flaming sword in the sky and called some company to see it but before they could come it was disappeared and about a week after my wife and i were walking and we discovered in the clouds a shining cloud exactly in the shape of a dart and seem to be over my plantation. Now, I would use that as a UFO sighting if I was so inclined. A dart and what does it say? But a shining cloud, a shining cloud, exactly in the shape of a dart and seemed to be over my plantation, but it soon disappeared likewise. Both these appearances seemed to foretell some misfortune to me, which afterwards came to pass in the death of several of my Negroes after a very unusual manner. Again, that woman went mad and kind of died very quickly. And another one of his younger, uh, uh, sounds like a slave girl, was just fine one day and then sick and then died the next. My wife, about two months since, dreamed that she saw him. Okay, here's another good one. My wife, about two months since, dreamed she saw an angel in the shape of a big woman who told her the time who told her the time was altered and the seasons were changed and that several calamities would follow that confusion. God avert his judgment from this poor country. Time was altered and the seasons were changed. That's a second woman who dreamt that the seasons were changing in that year. And that, that had some connect and well, obviously seasons and time, but um, yeah, I think uh, again, I, I, I don't really know how to wrap up my thoughts on this. I, um, other than to say, like, it's interesting. The, this is a very introspective year for Bird. And I, I think broadly what's interesting is what we mentioned earlier about the sort of economic stuff, like having the issue with the Coopers, uh, the political stuff, which is um, the Whigs are leaving power, basically, right? Like we talk about... Um, he hasn't got the news that his uh, father's dead or uh, father-in-law is dead yet, but he is uh, died in Jan- or December of uh, 1710 yet. That news hasn't come. We'll talk about that in the next one. Um, 
but uh, you know, I don't, it, it's just, and then there's also the case of his wife feeling like she was going to die. And you read that and you read all of her other sort of temperamental issues. But the truth is she was, she was going to die in a couple of years after this. Um, and it probably, I, I can't remember if it was through a childbirth, but um, like all this stuff is having extreme toll on, I think these people. And yeah, it's interesting to see the breaking point come Um obviously when you're back home in the quiet plantation and not when you're getting wasted and drinking chocolate and uh, playing cards uh, every night in Williamsburg. But Alex, I think you, that what you mentioned earlier about how he can't mention city or can't, he can't deal with city life is I think the most interesting thing is and most pronounced here is. um, And I think one of the more interesting things about reading this journal is, when he's like, oh, I'm preparing to go to Williamsburg. Like at the end of this year, he would go back home for like a day, maybe beat somebody and then go back um, to Williamsburg, uh, just constantly there because the governor was in charge. But anyway, thank you guys so much. Are you want to say something else? Yeah, actually, something that I really like about the end of this year and reading it, you know, like kind of closed as a year, that last dream when, you know, we get another like vision of like death and destruction, it finally like for me like intersects with the other kind of story that's going on in this year that's always left in the background which is this constant like intense drama with the that the slaves must be experiencing like the constant running away and the beatings like mm-hmm. like their lives are filled with so much like drama and like at at death's door and like trying to escape and like almost something like biblical basically yes. and there's this but you only get like the littlest hint of it you know you always get like his little asides about this and you always get it from his perspective which is like internal drama of like there's something not right in the air meanwhile this like great injustice is happening right underneath him under his own house and i love how those two things inter like intersect right at the end when in kind of the cruelest way when they're like, oh, a horrible thing did happen. Some of my slaves died, which surely to him must mean is a balance sheet issue, like you were mm-hmm. saying earlier. That's the great tragedy. That's like, this is going to cost a lot of money. It's like, it's like when you get close, but you're yet like that closeness actually makes you telescopes the problem. It gets you even further away. Like there is some genuine insight there, but he's it's so clouded. He's not making the connection. Yeah, it's, it's, it becomes another layer of, like, exploitation, these dreams, basically. Because, right. yeah, he, again, like, I don't, I don't think escape attempts were as prominent in 1709, even. And this, he makes that big deal for 26 more slaves. Um, and, and almost immediately after that, like, there's constant uh, escape attempts, um often i mean there there were escape attempts in the last year i don't want to say there weren't any but it seems like it's becoming a constant uh preoccupation and uh problem for the plantation that um people are trying to escape um and sometimes like mentioned like four at a time so it's becoming coordinated um and i mean yeah exactly what what did they think what did those four slaves who like saw 26 more brought in um and with yeah i mean and i think that is 
one thing I'm curious to see how that, um, I mean, I have read this entire diary, but I'm curious how that develops. Cause that does seem to be the trajectory of this, just an ex, a, a uh, accelerating desperation uh, more evident of people to get out. Um, so, yeah. Uh, on that note, um, patreon.com slash literary hangover. If you want to support us in this, um, thanks everybody for your patience. Um, we will, uh, get, we'll probably, I think maybe try to knock out, I'll probably try to knock out the next summarize the next two a little bit quicker. Um, uh, but we'll have to get into the Tuscarora war. I need to do a little bit of uh, research on that. Cause we start to see the first, uh, sign, outbreak of that. Um, but, uh, yeah, until next time, uh, Alex and Grace, thank you guys so much for uh, joining me tonight. It was great to talk with you. Thank you.